Hello, and welcome to the ESVS Podcasts. My name is Vaiva Dabravoskaite, and today we are going to talk about a rather unknown topic in vascular medicine, vascular malformations, rare but nevertheless important. The ESVS Guideline Committee has already kick-started what will be the ESVS Guidelines on the Management on Vascular Malformations. This is indeed a neglected topic that most vascular surgeons know a little but not much about, unless you have become an expert in the field, like our guest speaker today, Professor Iris Baumgartner. With her, we are going to summarize the essential key points and insights and the latest management strategies of vascular malformations. But first things first, I would like to introduce Professor Iris Baumgartner, one of the most experienced interventional vascular specialists in the field. She developed interest and skills in this pathology decades ago and is an active clinician, educator, and a researcher. Welcome, Professor Baumgartner. Oh, I'm happy, very happy to contribute my expertise, uh, Viva. I must be honest, before I came to the University Hospital of Bern and entered the outpatient clinic with you, I knew very little about patients with vascular malformations. It has always been a very mysterious and rare group of diseases, which once detected, were always taken away from residence care and referred to a more experienced physician or even other centers. How rare is this pathology? So here's the first confusion. Um, congenital vascular malformation is not a single entity and different doctors often mean different things when they talk about this topic. So just giving an example, hereditary hemorrhagic teleangiectasia, HHT, or Ehlers-Danlos and Marfan's disease are actually inherited congenital vascular malformations. How often uh, they, are, they are perceived as separate individual vascular disease class. So focusing on the common definition we want to talk about today, we talk about non-germline congenital vascular malformation, and this is actually diagnosed in 0.5 to 1.5% of all people worldwide. So taken together, there are very many people actually affected. However, and this also creates some confusion, congenital vascular malformation has to be classified dependent on vascular uh, bed being affected. So, for example, you can talk about arteriovenous malformation versus capillary malformation, or, for example, whether vascular malformation is associated with other anomalies. And this is where the next confusion comes. Using the ISVA classification, there are more than 30 subentities of congenital vascular malformation being differentiated, and each of these individual entities becomes rare disease. And this is uh, about five out of uh, 10,000 people being affected. All right. So this ISVA classification, standing for International Society for the Study of Vascular Anomalies, is this most accepted and the most uh, used classification we should know about? Yeah, actually, I think if you go with the ISVA classification, so the International Society for the Study, of vascular anomalies, it becomes much easier to give an, an umbrella-like view of vascular malformation. So if we go into this classification, it basically separates vascular tumors, 
So for example, benign hemangiomas or malignant vascular tumors. And this is differentiated from real congenital vascular malformation. So you have two separate types or separations, vascular tumor and congenital vascular malformation. And if we then go into congenital vascular malformation, then these are differentiated into first simple vascular malformation, that is venous or lymphatic or capillary or AV malformation, meaning that vascular or lymphatic endothelial cells show dysplastic behavior in a very defined vascular bed with a pretty dedicated clinical picture. So this is, makes it already a little easier, so simple. So you look for venous malformation, lymphatic malformation, and then you see a clinical picture going with this. All right, that definitely that, clears things out a little bit. And then, and then you, you go from simple, make it a little bit more complex. You, you can combine, say you have combined vascular malformation, that is you have two or more vascular beds being involved. Uh, and that's, for example, you have venous and lymphatic malformation, or you have venous capillary malformation, and so on. And the third is, if you have this combined with other anomalies, for example, syndromic pictures like the Klippel-Trenonay syndrome, we all know, with overgrowth from, from the university. So, mm -hmm. so this makes it, makes it a little bit easier, simple, combined, or vascular malformation with other anomalies. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And so the most common type of vascular malformation is AV malformation, right? And should we discuss this a little bit in more depth? And is it a correct assumption to say that those malformations are usually detected in childhood? I think here we have the next confusion. Indeed, the most common congenital vascular malformation is venous malformation that makes up to 50 to 70% of all cases. So it's actually not AV malformation. Um, AV malformation makes up, say, about 10 to 20% at most. However, uh, the clinical consequences of AVM can become very critical in large AV malformation, ranging from hyperdynamic heart failure, or tissue necrosis due to steel syndrome. And this, this is where, where it's more interest and more need for treatment, giving the impression that AVM is more prevalent than all the other forms. And coming to, to your question about children, so large congenital AVMs are often diagnosed in childhood indeed. However, the, the majority becomes apparent in adolescents and adults when parent patients can verbalize themselves with symptoms less obvious than compared to children. I think that this is just depending on, on the symptoms of these patients that we, again, have the impression it's more prevalent in children or comes more often diagnosed in childhood. Yeah, and probably whether, whether location is something what is really uh, has an influence on their appearance. So that's where sometimes parents get more worried and, and try to search for the reasons as well. All right, as I mentioned in the introduction, I think vascular malformations are a rather neglected topic. But also little is discussed about severely how severely those patients suffer from the condition, and I mean physically and psychologically. What are the most common clinical manifestations and what are your thoughts on it? Mm -hmm. 
I was afraid about this question. <laughs> What's the most common clinical manifestation? So as mentioned in the introduction, the heterogeneity of congenital vascular malformation is enormous and leading to multiple clinical symptoms completely and dependent on the vascular best being involved and whether a vascular malformation is combined with other anomalies, for example, overgrowth. So having said that, it becomes obvious that most common clinical manifestation becomes dependent rather on the specialist the patient seeks help from. So it can be life-threatening, progressive AVM seen by a vascular surgeon, so there's more us, or a cosmetically disturbing nevus flammeus due to capillary malformation seen by the dermatologist, or it might be a painful large venous malformation with sky-high D-dimers first being recognized by a hematologist or phlebologist. So it's, it's like what's more prevalent, it's not the AVM, What's the most prevalent clinical symptom? It, it depends a little from which angle you see the patient at what kind of specialist you are. So this is for us as special vascular uh, doctors that, that we probably see most of the ABMs. All right. And once we suspected their condition, what kind of imaging modalities are preferable or acceptable in order to be able to access the situation properly? I think that's that's pretty simple and, and easy for most of the doc doctors. You do an ultrasound, duplex ultrasound. So this is the basic imaging mortality and that helps to differentiate low flow from the more dangerous high flow AVM. And the next is in magnetic resonance imaging and MR angiography to define the local extent of the malformation and say tissue overgrowth or other mm. anomalies. So in combination with clinical assessment, it is usually possible to make the diagnosis according to ISPA just by using duplex and MR. All right. Ideally, what disciplines should be involved in planning the treatment of those patients? Well, give a simple answer. All doctors, <laughs> no, that, that would be too, too complex. Um, it's, it's usually multidisciplinary. It depends a little bit from, again, from what kind of malformation. So you... you for sure, need a vascular specialist with experience. Um, you need a radiologist for good imaging. Um, dermatologists are usually on board, plastic surgeons, hematologists, orthopedic surgeons, um, pediatricians. Don't forget about pediatricians. And, and they shouldn't do it by themselves alone, but in a combination. And last but not least, more recently, it's the geneticist that becomes more, more of an importance in these teams because we have new treatment options, targeted molecularly targeted therapy based on genetic diagnosis in these malformations. And I think sometimes you need the cardiologist if you have high flow AVM. Uh, you need psychological support for patients and, and particularly in children for families as well. All right. To continue on my story experience of getting familiar with AV malformations in an outpatient clinic while following you, I clearly remember that after seeing the first patient, I was so overwhelmed that I do not know a thing about this, that I am not sure if you noticed it, but you rewarded me with a pile of research papers and treatment methods. And that was my first uh, acquaintance with medical treatment of AV malformations, for which I'm more than grateful up till now. Can you walk us through possible treatment modalities? 
Yeah, I think in the last years, and I think that's important, we, we know that, that the majority of congenital vascular malformation are based on oncogenes. So there is a congenital um, genetic defect. It's usually proliferative, and that can be targeted by medications coming from oncology. So if we go to, you ask me exactly because AVM is complicated to being treated with, with our modalities of endovascular treatment of embolotherapy or surgery, um, this might become something for the future as a first choice of treatment. So, so AVMs in more than 80% are based on oncogenes. So there are endothelial cells with a genetic defect, a proliferate defect, that is the, the cause of this dysplastic vascular bed. And for, for patients, with, particularly with extensive disease that can't be cured by embolotherapy or surgery, even if you have the best experience, uh, molecular targeted therapy might become even life-saving for these patients. So if an AVM can't be cured by completely, and this is just, you really have to listen now. If you want to really cure AVM by conventional treatment, surgery, or embolotherapy, you have to exclude all the AVM shunts. Otherwise, the risk of short-term recurrence and even aggravating the disease is enormous. And this is the main mistake. Uh, if we just do a little bit of it, it's like if you would cut out a bit of a tumor that, that will not really help the patient. But for these patients, and that's that's more than, than yeah, I would say 50% of patients, you can't really target all the AVMs. And here we have new treatments, in, and we have good data now from clinical trials in experienced centers. And in these patients, if you have contact with geneticists and oncologists, this targeted treatment and that the main agent we're using today is trametinib should be recommended and, and discussed instead of doing unreasonable uh, try and error of, of invasive treatment. So, so this is really the, the most important sentence of, of, of my talk is to say, it's great if you can kill it, if you can cure it, if you can shut down all the AVM shams. If, if you are not able to then you really have to stay away because you can really aggress the AVM and then it's even deteriorating the situation of the patient. Mm -hmm. so, so in my long-term experience, I know how frustrating and even dangerous incomplete treatment can become. And if performed uncritically and without knowledge on the, of the AVM behavior, even the treatment of small size and very localized AVMs can become a disaster for patients as uh, it has uh, designated the intervention of treatment as a frustrating and unpromising treatment. So, so if you can shut down, it's a great treatment. If not, and this is what we read in the literature, you can even deteriorate the situation for, for patients. So, 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 if you then, then go for, say you have now in your toolbox medical therapy, like, like if you have the genetic background, you have the oncogene diagnosed, you can go with targeted therapy, for example, with trametinib 
in, in extensive disease, or you go with say conventional endovascular or surgical therapy, keep in mind shutting down all the AV shunts. And this often means you have to go back again and do it in a stage procedure. It's, it's rare that you go one time and then the AVM is, is cured. You often have to go back with say uh, a, a time interval of three to four weeks and then go on with the patient, explain the, the patient so that that's something that's good for the patient. All right. Just a note for the listeners that I will definitely add the, um, the trials uh, Professor Baumgartner is mentioning while our, we are speaking in the show notes. And uh, to continue on the topic, are there any contraindications for one method or the other? I would like us specifically to touch the topic of age limits and anatomical location. No, not really. I mean, if, if I'm talking from my experience about children, it's just size-wise, it's more complex. It's more, more um, say, say, needs a higher skill of, of treatment. Otherwise, if we go again with the, the options we have, if we go for medical therapy, if you have the genetic mutation, and this is verified in the tissue, and there's extensive disease with poor chance to be cured by embolo or, ther or surgical therapy, medical therapy with, for example, trametamid should really be evaluated and the evaluation um, we will come to that. Should should be in in say in collaboration with doctors like oncologists and internists, knowing about the side effects. And if, if that's screened before starting the treatment, it's it's not dangerous. This can be really offered to all patients. So so options we have now in the toolbox for medical therapy is sirolimus. That's rather for venous trametinib is rather for AVM or alpelisib. This is for syndromic like gloves or protoist syndrome uh, with overgrowth. So these are the three names that people probably can remember, sirolimus, trametinib, and alpelisib. This is all oral therapy. It comes along with some side effects. So as I said, needed some collaboration with, with internists and oncologists, at least in the beginning to familiarize yourself with these drugs. You should follow these patients on a very regular basis, once or twice per month. And side effects and outcomes should be monitored to make sure that patients really do profit from this therapy and the indication should be re-evaluated after about a year. So if the, the patient doesn't show a response to this, this treatment, you should stop. If there's a good effect, usually the treatment duration is about two years. Mm -hmm. So if we then go to what we are more familiar with is interventional treatment. Are there any particular contraindications or limitations? I would say yes, if someone is not experienced. Um, so, if someone is just doing a case or two or three per year, I, I, I think that, that rather harms the patient. So the contraindication is no skill, no experience. For younger patients uh, being more delicate, uh, I usually try to decline treatment if, if there's it's no really need so that children can, can grow up to adolescence, then this becomes easier and, and less risky, I would say. 
for cooperation reasons as well, probably just to. It's the yeah. same. And, and patients should be symptomatic usually. So you should not treat malformation without any symptoms. AVMs usually progress during um, lifetime. So that's due to shear stress. So most of these patients over time become an indication for treatment. All the others often can just be followed and, and only treated if they have symptoms. Right. Now let's try to discuss endovascular options for AV malformations in detail. Can you describe the setting in your angio suite, like access is needed, ultrasound guidance, angio table, team, and the other particulars you use? Um, the, the first most important to, to go with an interdisciplinary team. So surgeon, interventionalist, maybe plastic surgeon should get the heads together and say, what's a good option? maybe one specialist or specialist together. So in the multi-step uh, or staged procedure, uh, basically it's probably interventional embolotherapy for AVM, but again, it's a case by case decision. So all the patients do need their individual treatment concepts. So you can't say it's, it's always the same, depends a little bit on the location. Uh, in contrast to intracranial AVM, extracranial are uh, usually treated by direct percutaneous puncture of the nidus. So the nidus is where the, the arterial part comes to the venous part with an out and interconnected capillary bed. So what I usually say is, give me a needle and I will just directly puncture where this transition zone is. So if that's at the foot, I go to the foot and get the needle into the nidus. Uh, needs a little bit of experience, but, but I think this is important to keep in mind. And if, if the nidus is, can be directly punctured uh, with dedicated puncture needles, they can be packed with coils. Mm -hmm. uh, you re rarely can really pack coils densely enough to completely shut down uh, the AVM. So that's the point where, where you can inject whatever you think you want to inject. If I personally use um, ethanol, because that kills the endothelial cell, it's a denaturation of proteins so that the endothelial cells are dead, uh, comes with more complication and more logistic uh, effort you have to invest into that treatment. But you also can use, say, onyx or whatever you, you think to shut really down the flow. So coil, densely packed, and then a little bit of any kind of embolo uh, therapeutic to, to finally completely shut down flow. So that's the secret behind AVM treatment. All right. And uh, when we choose the, the injection, uh, what is the amount of, of this uh, injection agent which can be used per session is there any interval between the repetition of the procedure and how many of them can be performed for one patient is there a limit no not not really except for ethanol so if you go with coiling and then a little bit of onyx or histoacryl or whatever you are used to uh, there is not a real limitation maybe expense of of onyx if you go with ethanol what Personally, I prefer 
because it's it's really killing the endothelial cells so the mutated endothelial cells cannot regrow mm-hmm. then there's actually i call it the six by six rule so you should not go by more than 0.6 cc per per kilogram body weight and you should inject not more than six cc and then wait for another six minutes because it's a fluid and it dilutes in the systemic circulation can create vasospasm, particularly in the pulmonary vasculature. Yes. And can those cause um, DVT? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's highly thrombogenic. Uh, if you go for AVM, although it then dilutes into the venous system, the moment the, the ethanol is diluted to less than 60% concentration, um, it, it doesn't harm the vascular tree anymore. So, so I really rarely see deep venous thrombosis. Mm-hmm. I also use it on the venous side. If I go for venous malformation, then it can really spread into the normal, healthy venous tree, and that can create uh, thrombosis. Fortunately, if you anticoagulate these patients, um, it, it, it's, it fades away because endothelial cells are healthy. And thrombosis acutely um, uh, developed due to the scleroembotherapy uh, over time uh, re- reconstitutes completely. That's the good part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the procedure painful? Embolotherapy, usually, if you don't use ethanol, it's not painful. So the if you do it correctly and you really hit the, the, the nidus and you shut down the uh, flow through the nidus. It doesn't, it's not painful at all. It becomes painful if you have a spill over to the, the, the normal nutritive capillary bed or arteries, then for sure it becomes um, painful because you have ischemia. But it's a question of skill. If you use ethanol, as I do, it's terribly painful. So, so even a drop of ethanol and the patient will, will cry. So, so if you decide yourself to use ethanol, you have to do that on a general anesthesia. Yes. And the risk for compartment syndrome, if we work, work in a call, for example, after the, the closure of AV malformations, do you have the prevalence? No, no. Uh, yeah. You have inflammation. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it induces inflammation and that creates swelling, but compartment risk of compartment is pretty low. Yeah. Can you explain about medical therapy of AV malformations in a context of US versus Europe? What are the differences? Yeah, it's still experimental. And doctors need to get an acceptance for compassionate news. And this is in Europe, this is for all the drugs, whether we're talking about sirolimus or trametinib or apelacid, uh, it's compassionate use and, and you can't just give that to a patient and do a prescription for that. In the US, to my surprise, apelacid is approved since a year for patients with syndromic disease like Glove's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, the per month uh, cost for this treatment is, is about $8,000 uh, per month. In Europe, I would recommend to go in contact with centers for all these substances. There are pretty good, well-performed trials running. So that's the easiest way to get the patient adequately treated. Okay. 
and uh, which patients are eligible for medical treatment? Personally, I would say if you do have the genetic mutation detected in the tissue, in the malformation tissue, not, not all centers do have the, the possibility to go for these next generation sequencings. Mm, and it, it, it's more and more like we say, okay, Surelimus might be a, a good chance of pain reduction and size reduction in venous malformation. Uh, Surelimus is not extremely expensive and it's not, not extremely combined with side effects. So a try and error for dedicated substances like Surolimus for venous malformation, follow patients for two or three months. So if there's no response regarding pain and size, stop treatment. Uh, or if you have AV malformation, to get tissue for genetic analysis is, is, is kind of complicated because you have to puncture the AVM and there's bleeding complication. So there might be a try for trametinib. So again, two or three months, follow the patient. There's a size reduction. Be happy. Continue treatment and the same for apalysis. So, so you can go for genetic um, diagnostics to make, make mm -hmm. the chance higher that there's response or you can do it like try and error. Thank you. And what are the possible side effects and how often does it occur? So you a little bit touched up on that, but... Yeah. So, so all these, these medications come from, from transplant medicine and oncology. Uh, what we learned over the last three years is you don't go with the same doses. So it's it's rather low dose. It's it's maybe less than half the doses we, we're used to from oncology or transplant uh, medicine. So, so if you go with, say, the, the named medications, Sirolimus, Tramatinib, Alpelizib, the, the most patients develop skin or mucus rash. They have some kind of nausea, tiredness. Many have reversible eye or heart problems or diarrhea. Uh, so so it's, it's, it's a pretty safe treatment. Uh, but I have to say, you have to, to exclude, say, severe liver, severe heart, severe kidney or blood diseases before you start treatment. So you, you should come with a patient that's, I wouldn't say healthy, but is in a good shape, then this medication is pretty safe. Definitely. All right, we're coming towards the end and um, a lot of young and eager colleagues are probably already thinking about trying out one or the other technique we mentioned in our conversation. From my own observational experience, it is extremely precise and it takes a lot of work, time and patience to achieve the necessary skills. Uh, Professor Baumgartner, please share with us your learning curve and maybe some tips for the future colleagues. My personal learning curve, it started about 15 years ago. I had the same problem. So there are patients and I have no clue about it. So that was a decision by myself to say, okay, let's, let's, let's get some experience. You can't read that after in the literature. Uh, in medical school, you have heard about congenital malformation, that doesn't help as well. Um, you need, if you really want to do something good for patients, then you, then you have to make a decision. I want to do it. And my old mentor and teacher, Professor Bibi Lee, always told me that, are you sure you want to do this? You want to carry this commitment with these patients because you have these patients forever. 
So then come back again. You, you're not just a doctor. You are the doctor for these patients. So I had about, say, uh, I'm still learning. I had years and I visited experienced centers. And this is what, what I would recommend the, the unexperienced and the younger colleagues. You really think about whether you really want to jump into it because it, 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 it's time consuming, it takes years to learn that, it's still rare disease, it's you have complication to face with, you have to uh, be in a multidisciplinary uh, team, you have to be in a large center. But if you are sure, I wanna do this because that was the best decision I ever did. I love these patients. Uh, they are so thankful because there are not so, there are not many patients, not many doctors doing that. Then you look for a center with experience and go there for say two or three months and then go back home again and then visit another center or invite the doctors with experience to your center to train you, your experience and your skill with your patient. This is what I did. So I had all the great masters in my center. I had Wayne Yakes, uh, Yang Sudo, Bibi Lee, uh, Matis, they all visited me in my center and we treated my patients together. But it took me about five to 10 years to, to that I would say I, I had a basic understanding what I'm doing. And a confidence, yeah. Thank you very much, Professor Baumgartner, for sharing your time and knowledge with me and our listeners. It was a pleasure for me. And uh, thank you all for listening. And remember that over 90 different podcasts are available open access in all platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, ESVS eLibrary, and the Vascular Forum webpage. More pieces are coming soon. Bye for now.